For Christians in liturgical churches, this is the beginning of the year. The season of Advent is the beginning of the church year. I thought I'd do a couple of things in my sermon today to talk about what it means to be in a liturgical church, to define some of those terms, to say some things about perhaps the benefits of being in a liturgical church, and then to focus on the gospel, which contains something that is known in biblical scholarship as the little apocalypse. And it is language that Uh, for people living in the beginning of the 21st century, uh, somewhat baffling, and may have been baffling even then. But we'll try and see if we can make some sense out of what Jesus had in mind and how the early church, principally Mark, took that saying and uh, applied it in a way that would make sense to his readership in the gospel according to Mark. A liturgical church is defined as, in this fashion, one of the definitions. Most churches have some form of liturgy that guides the flow of service, but a liturgical church conducts its services by a strict prescribed liturgy, a formal structure or order of worship which has been passed down from tradition. This type of church generally places much emphasis upon ceremony and ritual, and may use various forms of religious icons. Well-known liturgical churches that follow a similar, similar form are the Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Episcopal, and Eastern Orthodox churches. Some of you may say, well, that's well and good, but what, what's the word liturgy mean? Uh, it comes from a Greek word, liturgia, which means in one sense work or the work of the people but a definition that might be more full is a liturgy is the customary public worship done by a specific religious group according to their particular traditions. The word may refer to an elaborate formal ritual such as the Roman Catholic or Episcopal Mass or a daily activity such as the Muslim Salat. Another question uh, some people ask is, well, why do you do it? And in our tradition as Episcopalians, we have a a source that we look to for what is authoritative in our self-understanding. And that is three things. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our reason and experience. And so our worship together corporately reflects uh, all three of those aspects, scripture, tradition, and reason. I should say this also, there is nowhere in the Bible or in the tradition that Jesus ever advocated or implied that his followers should abandon liturgical worship, ritual and offerings, which he was careful to practice. You know, because there's a certain species of Christianity running around that says, you know, he was simple. He wanted everything simple. Well, he didn't want everything simple. (laughs) Practiced his religion uh, in a way that uh, practiced it in all its fullness. I should also say this. I was not raised an Episcopalian. I was raised a Christian scientist in the bosom of Mary Baker Eddy. (laughs) 
and at the First Church of Christ Scientist in San Mateo, California, where I went to church on Sunday with my family. Uh, There are no ordained clergy, ministers in Christian science there, so none of them can perform any kind of ministerial functions, marry people, you know, bury people, do whatever in that sense. But uh, they would come into church, come into the dais uh, every Sunday with the most meticulously precise movements and uh, carefully choreographed stuff. So the first reader, when he came in or she came in, if he was a man, this is a long time ago now, wore a cutaway coat and striped trousers, gray doeskin vest. And if it was a woman, she'd wear a full-length dress of some kind, all very careful. So you could say that even there, there was some kind of liturgy that was being performed at least uh, they wanted to make it seem so. So that, that's part of it. I became an Episcopalian in my late teens. And one of the reasons I did was because when I began to experience the liturgy, which, by the way, so if any of you are like this, uh, I found absolutely incomprehensible. And I thought to myself, boy, this is going to take some learning, you know, stand up, sit down, kneel down, do all this different stuff, and what did it all mean? And in those days, the bulletins were far less user-friendly than they are now. I mean, there'd be things on the bulletin that would be like, Jubilate Deo. (laughs) You know? So uh, uh, more explaining is is being done, and, and that's a good thing. But I must say that when I began to understand what it meant, I felt a personal sense of accomplishment. But I also realized something way more important than that. And that was that in this liturgy, what was going on was way bigger than me. It was way bigger than me. And by virtue of that, I began to make connections, not just about participating in a religious rite, R-I-T-E, or act, that I was involved in something that had to do with sort of a rhythm of life based on the seasons. And further to the point, I began to see that its intention was to remind people on a weekly basis that we're talking about something that's called, years ago, 1946, uh, an Anglican Benedictine monk named Dom Gregory Dix wrote a book called The Shape of the Liturgy. And he had a whole chapter in this book on what he called the sanctification of time. And he connected directly the liturgy to the whole idea of time in some way being sanctified, being filled with the presence of God. And what the person who participates begins to learn is that this now will connect and resonate with all of the aspects of your life, not the specifically religious ones. You'll be able then to make some connections about what the liturgy does in terms of beginning to work in you uh, those things which will help you become a better human being. And by virtue of that, you'll become the transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love that you're called to be. So I thought the liturgy, it certainly had a powerful impress 
on my life. And the repetitiveness of it became important. Some people say, well, gee, you're doing the same thing over and over again. You know, some people say that about the recovery movement, too. You go to Alcoholics Anonymous and you say, geez, you go there, it's the same darn thing all the time. What do you do it for? Because I need to be reminded about what it was like. And that's what we do when we come to the liturgy. We do that to understand what it's like. God's presence, God's unconditional acceptance, love and forgiveness, and how important that is the structure of reality for Christian people. So the liturgy is important. My teacher, O.C. Edwards, in my seminary in Ashota House, he was the professor of New Testament, and he said to us once in class, he said, you know, when you get ordained a priest and you celebrate the Eucharist, he said, you're going to discover that it is never the same twice. I was in my early 20s. I thought to myself, that's ridiculous. How could that be so? Something that you do uh, uh, on a regular basis. He was 100% correct. So, you know, things that you do over and over again are helpful. I've been speaking the last couple of weeks about the importance of memory. And I've told you some stories about why memorizing things is a good idea. And in our age, it seems less important because for many, it's less necessary. And I was at my 50th high school reunion, uh, the early part of October. And when I was there, an old friend that I'd gone all through school with from kindergarten on was there. He lives in the Hawaiian Islands now, and he came up to say hello to me, and we were sitting and talking together. And uh, he had been an acolyte at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo. Most of my young friends that I grew up with were members of St. Matthew's San Mateo and and were acolytes there. And so John said to me when uh, we had the dinner and then a program, brief program, thank you, and then we're just billing around and schmoozing. But the pre- presentation in the program was some, something a, a bit over the top. So John sat there and turned, and turned to me and he looked, you know, he said, there were a few times when so-and-so was speaking when it just occurred to me that he should have said, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. Good piece of memory, right? So sometimes it helps and can't hurt. So here's how the church year is laid out. In the primitive church, what we do now in Western Christianity and liturgical churches is something that dates from about the 7th century, 6th or 7th century A.D., or C.E., as we say these days. And it uh, started this way, its evolution, from about the 300s. The first post was Easter. And that was followed by a brief period of preparation that we now call Holy Week, and then ultimately became what we now call Lent. 
So we have Lent and we have Holy Week and then we have Easter. And the second post that goes in is Christmas. And we had a preparatory season called Advent. In Northern Europe, where people are more austere, Advent was six weeks long, just like Lent. In fact, it was called in some places St. Martin's Lent because it began right after the feast of St. Martin of Tours, an important saint in uh, the Western calendar. We get all this, by the way, from Charlemagne later on, the calendar, who had an advisor, a deacon, a monk who was from York, Alcuin, and he headed his grammar school in Aachen. And he noticed that there were all these different feast days and seasons and everything, and he came to Charlemagne and he said, King, he didn't say that. <laughs> but he said, why don't we, make some, why don't we make, create some uniformity so around Western Europe we'll all be on the same page, so to speak, with regard to the way we celebrate things. And so he said, make it so. So what they did was reach a compromise because six weeks in northern Europe and in the Mediterranean countries, as you can imagine, Advent was four weeks long and the penitential overlay was somewhat less. (laughs) So what we had then was a four-week season retaining some of the more penitential aspects in order, I suspect, to please those in northern Europe who like to stand up to their neck in cold water as a sign of their love for God, right? So we then have Advent, and then after Christmas, we have the Sundays after Epiphany very briefly, and then we segue into Lent, and then to Easter, and then we have a period of 26 weeks we call the Green Sundays, or the Sundays after Pentecost. And thematically, from the biblical readings and so on, it's a season when we talk about discipleship, about how to practice the Christian life, about the deep things of Christian faith and life in sort of a uh, a didactic sense. So in each of these three seasons, we have different readings from the Bible. So we just finished year A, and these are determined by what is the principal gospel that's read in each of these three years. So Matthew's first, year A. Mark, we've just come to today, year B. And Luke, our patron, Year C. So we're reading now from the oldest gospel in the New Testament. Mark's gospel is also the shortest gospel. And it was written uh, in about 70, maybe 75 AD. And here's why this is important. Today we read from Mark's gospel from something called the Little Apocalypse. And it's about uh, the, coming, the, the, the second coming or the coming, the end of the world, whatever it is. And you have to ask yourself, well, how did, what, was, what was the point? What did Jesus mean when he spoke this? How did the early Christians prior to the writing of the New Testament understand it and interpret it? And how does it mean anything to us today? Or how did Mark use it when he redacted the text, when he edited the gospel? And so what we begin to come to now is uh, a lot of biblical scholarship about this over the last 50 or 60 years. There's more than one coming. 
There's Jesus' coming. We celebrate in Advent the coming of the birth of the Savior, historically. We also focus on what has been known as the second coming, which is the opportunity for us to reflect on how God comes to us over time in multiple ways so that you understand that we're not, nearly, we're not merely talking about two discrete D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E things. We're talking about how this happens to us corporately and personally. When Mark wrote his gospel, something had happened in the ancient Near East. And that was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 68 to 70 A.D., The Romans came into Jerusalem and they burnt the city down and they destroyed the temple. It was a wreck. And before that, on their way, they stopped off at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are from. And they destroyed that place. That's how all those scrolls got into jars and hidden in the caves. So they had had an apocalypse The people who heard this and read this, they said, well, we've experienced something like this corporately. And we're trying to draw some connections, not only uh, corporately about as a people, what does it mean for us and how do we reconstitute ourselves in the middle of all this and do a reflection about how can we be, live lives congruent with God's purposes? And can we learn any lessons about this for our own lives? I mean, every one of us sitting in this church has had something happen to them that has turned them upside down for a while and made us wonder how in the world are we going to get out the other end and what is it that we're going to do? And so it's important for us to focus on God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness as a means of appropriating a way to understand that that these connections can be drawn in some ways. A couple of weeks ago, I said something to you about the two threads that run through Anglican spirituality, the two sources of Anglican spirituality. Uh, One of them may be be able to be called enthusiasm. It's much later than the one I'm going to speak about next. And that is the belief that each of us needs to have a felt experience of the presence of God in our life in order to know that we've been clicked in. Sometimes it's called the consolation. I expect in certain species of American Christianity it might be called being born again. By the way, if anybody ever asked you if you've been born again in your Episcopalian, you say, yes, I have. I was born again at my baptism. That's what we understand that to mean for us. So we have that. Another example would be Charles or John Wesley. You know, he was an Anglican priest. John Wesley was at Aldersgate in England in the 18th century, and he heard somebody reading to the crowd from the... Paul's epistle to the Romans and he said he felt his heart strangely warmed I don't know having the epistle to the Romans read to you was 
you might need to have to do a little thinking about that. Paul was a genius, and what's in that book is very, very important, or in that letter. But um, it shows you the sources can be varied in terms of how we understand what it means to feel the consolation. So I don't want to throw any cold water on that, but my teacher, Urban Holmes, uh, one of them at Neshota House, used to say to us, what he prefers is a, a spiritual path that, for want of a better term, he would call mysticism, which is an unfortunate term because it's so much so uh, misunderstood by so many. But the way he explained it was, mysticism is a five-fold path as we move as people wishing now to live a life congruent with God's purpose, to discern God's purpose for us, to understand how what we learn we can put into our hands to become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world. And it involves five things. Purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. Purgation is an old-fashioned word, which it means to purge from yourself those habits of being and relating that keep you from being centered in God. Emptying is the process in your prayer and in your thinking to push to the side the distractions we all have in our lives. Being distracted is sort of part and parcel of living in the 21st century. And learning how to cope with those distractions and those stray thoughts when we wish to do a piece of straight thinking not only about God, but about whatever it is that we need to be clear about. Study is being the best student you can be about the deep things of the Christian faith and life, but also being a student that you need to be about anything that's important to you in your vocation, in your understanding of your relationships, in how the world works. Whatever it is that you wish to do, you need to study on it. Discipline is the uh, cultivation of the interior uh, regulation and, and discipline or uh, stamina that you need to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. And the hardest one of all is patience. I mean, we're in the age of the quick fix. We're in the age of I want it, I get it. Right? Did you see the television, the news shows the last couple of days where on Black Friday there were people in fist fights in Target and Walmart or wherever it is because they, somebody was ahead of them to get the thing that was on sale? I don't know about you, but there's something bad, maladjusted in this culture. And we need to be able to figure out, you know, what that might mean and how we understand this. Jesus says in today's gospel that we need to be awake. This is one of the themes of Advent. Being awake, being alert, watching, reading the signs. In other uh, religious faith traditions, we might call it mindfulness. what we mean about that. So let me see. Wait for what you hear in the Bible for the next three weeks. 
You're going to hear more about uh, from Isaiah. You're going to hear more from Mark, a little from John, and a little from Luke. And they're going to be describing these major themes, alertness, hope, repentance, joy. You know, joy is not... Some people once described it to me that joy um, was like Snoopy. The way Charles Schutz used to draw Snoopy, kind of hilarious. Joy for the Christian person is the sure and steady confidence that the conundrums and ambiguities of life can and will come into sharper and clearer focus. And that is not beyond anybody. So if you're upside down or in some turmoil or you're facing an apocalyptic moment, think about what Julian of Norwich, a famous uh, English Christian mystic, said, all things shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. Amen.